Welcome to the Creep Show. That's Ashley. I'm Sarah. <laughs> and today we are talking about Lizzie Borden. Do you know Lizzie Borden? You know who she is? You know what she did? Not like a song. <laughs> she, uh, the song is Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 okay. wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's the song. When I was a child, that real. why would people sing that song to children? <laughs> I think why I might people, have heard that when I was little. Why do people do the things that they do? I mean, I anybody. Yeah, you know. Anything I have to scare your children to sleep. Right? Oh, I have thanks. Um, some of my um, shit on here and then some of it in here. <gasps> Language. Oh, my God. Oh. Fuck off, Zuck. Um, oh, anywho. So, we're going to talk, like I said, about Lizzie Borden and... Um, do you guys, have you guys ever been to the Lizzie Borden house? Uh, it's in Massachusetts, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, they actually have it set up the way that it looked. I think it's not the original furniture, obviously, because you. Um, yeah. But um, they, uh, uh, they actually have the house set up to look the way it did in 18-whatever. Uh, um, and people go in there on, like, Tour, they take tours, you oh, know, of the okay. house. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there, there are crime scene photos, and people will pose on the couch and um, on the floor because, like, the, her dad was on the couch and he was like slumped back like this, and people will like take pictures and posing the way that he was found. Like, it's just weird. Like, I'm I, morbid I as fuck. I am yeah. morbid, but that is just nasty. I, I don't think I. I'd be the type of person just do a quick walk through the house. I'm like, hey, yep, uh, yeah, nice, yep, yeah. see ya. All right, I'm I'm out. Like, I, you do like uh, um, right down here in Springfield. Uh, oh yeah, Lincoln, like the Lincoln homes. Lincoln homes. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just don't touch anything. You, you yeah. know, you can't touch anything. You can't get off the main carpet that they have you walk on. But it's also a bed and breakfast, oh. which I don't think I would want to stay there. But, um, so we're going to start off uh, talking about Lizzie. She was an American woman who was the main suspect in the August 4th, 1892 axe murders of her father and stepmother in Fall River, Massachusetts. The Massachusetts. It's okay. The Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19th, 1860 to Sarah Anthony Morse and Andrew Jackson Borden. She was of English descent and Welsh descent, uh, from mostly from her father. I don't know what her mother gave her, but, you know. Um, Lizzie's father grew up struggling financially, even though he was the descendant of wealthy and influential people. It sounds like my family, because uh, we were entitled to some money, and my grandma wouldn't let my grandpa pursue it. Yeah. We could have been living in a fucking nice-ass house, but... This is more crap to clean. Ah, no thanks. So, (laughs) over time, he eventually prospered in the making and selling of furniture and caskets. He went on to become a successful property developer who directed several textile mills, um, including the Globe Yarn Mill Company, Troy Cotton, and Woolen Manufacturing Company. He also owned a considerable amount of commercial property and was both president and the union of the Union Savings Bank and director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. At the time of his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, which is equivalent to $8 million, $8.1 million in 2017. 
That's a lot. Yeah, that's quite a bit. Um, Don't have that kind of cash. Can I ask for this? No, they don't have a million dollars. million dollars, okay. Although he was wealthy, he was known for his frugality. Uh, for instance, the board and home, like indoor plumbing, they didn't have that because he was frugal and he didn't want to waste money on plumbing and electricity because why would you? Um, why not just go outside and just take it real quick? (laughs) Which, I mean, even in the 18, the late, the late 1800s, like that was a common thing for wealthy people. Yeah. You know, all you have a, you have a crapper. You have a crapper in your house? What? <laughs> honestly, the king sitting here. <laughs> honestly, I'd rather take my life in my own hands than walking out to my own crapper in my backyard. Because I don't want anybody smelling that. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, or to just dig a big deep hole somewhere. Okay. Just bring some toilet paper. You'll be fine. <laughs> the resident... <laughs> the residence at 92 second... Uh, this... this is a dyslexic nightmare. Dyslexic. The residence at 92 2nd Street. 92. 2nd Street. Second. So I'm reading it and it looks like it says 92nd Street, but it's 92 2nd oh, Street. Oh, cr- Oh, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Brain. Okay. 2nd um, Street. Yeah. <laughs> See? <laughs> what is that? But anyway, it was located um, in an affluent area, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, including Andrew's cousins, generally lived in the more fashionable neighborhood, The Hill. Um, The Hill was further away from the industrial areas of the city and much more homogenous racially, uh, ethically, and socioeconomically. Yikes. So, uh, if you ain't white, you ain't right back then. Still today with some people. Um, So Lizzie and her sister Emma had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central Congregational Church. She was a Sunday school teacher to children of recent immigrants to the United States. Lizzie's mother died on, um, I saw August 4th, but I think that's wrong because that's the day that her pair, stepmom and dad were murdered. Yeah. But it was in 1892, whatever, of uterine congestion and spinal disease, which uterine congestion just sounds horrible. I'm assuming it's like a, um, like a UTI maybe? Because uterine congestion would be like your blockage in your uterine tract. Yeah, sounds somewhere in that area. Sounds horrible. (laughs) But she died. Um, And then three years later, after her death, her dad married Abby Durfee Gray. Uh, Lizzie called her stepmother Mrs. Borden. She believed that she married her father for his wealth. They did not get along. Well, yeah, that was usually the case back then. (laughs) Oh, honey... Pick of any man that has fine wealth. <laughs> I wish I could do that. It's like, nah, I like being poor. Thanks. Right? Um, their live-in maid, 25-year-old Bridget Sullivan, an Irish immigrant, testified that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents. A family argument in July 1892 prompted both sisters to take extended... See, and it gave the date of 1892 for her mother. But that ain't right, because that's the day that her stepmom and dad were fucking murdered. So, her mom died, I just don't know when. Um, Somewhere. (laughs) I'm sorry. Anywho. 
Um, <laughs> so, like I said, she believed, yeah, an argument, there it is, an argument in July 1892 prompted both sisters to take an extended vacation in New Bedford. After returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family residence. Tensions began rising in the family months before the murders over gifts Andrew gave to Abby's family of real estate. The sisters demanded and received rental property, the home that they lived in until their mother died. It's the home that they received. They bought the home from their father for, get this, a dollar. Oh, take your hat off. That's a dollar bill. <laughs> um, so back, back in those days, okay. I know, right? A dollar. People would uh, kill somebody for a dollar, uh, okay? Yeah. Uh, so a few weeks... Buy land with five dollars. I know. Um, a few weeks before the murders, they stole the property back to their father for $5,000, which is the equivalent of 136000 in 2017. Some speculate a visit from Lizzie and Emma's maternal uncle, John Morse, to discuss business matters with Andrew. Um, they speculate that their conversation, particularly about property transfers, may have aggravated an already tense situation with the family. Several days before the murder, the entire household was violently ill. Um, some thought that it could have been mutton that was left on the stove, but Abby feared poisoning since Andrew was not a very popular man. John Morse had slept in the guest room on August 3rd, their uncle, and on the morning of August 4th, sometime between 9 and 10.30 a.m., Abby had gone up to the guest room to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her right above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor creating contusions on her face and forehead, her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits on her, uh, or to the back of her head, killing her. Jeez. Yeah, not good. Um, Andrew and Morse went to the sitting room after breakfast and chatted for nearly an hour. Morse left around 8.48 a.m., planning to return to the Borden home for lunch at noon. His key failed to open the doors, so he knocked for attention when he returned. Their maid, Bridget, went to get the door and found it jammed. She uttered an expletive. <laughs> fuck! He's <laughs> all I can imagine. It's just, fuck! <laughs> she, la she later testified that she heard Lizzie laughing upstairs, although she didn't see her. Later, um, during uh, her... Uh, trial, Lizzie uh, denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked where Abby was and that a messenger delivered her summons to visit a sick friend. Lizzie stated that when she, that then she removed her father's boots and helped him into his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap. Although this was contradicted by a crime scene photo which showed him wearing boots. She then told Bridget of a department store sale and told her to go, but Bridget felt unwell and took a nap in her bedroom. So now I got to chill on here because the reason that it's um on here and in my paper is because my freaking brother called me while I was doing my research and so I had to stop. So I just kind of I have to go back and forth a little bit. Right. Um. So Bridget testified that she was in her third third floor room resting from cleaning windows when just before eleven ten a.m. she heard Lizzie call from downstairs. Maggie, come quick! Father's dead. 
Somebody came in and killed him. Which somebody killed him. Somebody <laughs> came in and killed him. Killed him. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I mean, they were from Boston, so Maggie, oh. grab your car keys. <laughs> I can't. No, I can't. Grab some Duncan. <laughs> I can't. I can't do a Boston. I can't do it. Either. Boston. Yeah, that's all I. Yeah, Boston, <laughs> Massachusetts. Um. So Andrew was slumped Minnesota. on. <laughs> Andrew was slumped on the couch downstairs. Um. In the sitting room, he was struck ten or eleven times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split in two. Mm-hmm. Um. Suggesting that he had been asleep whenever he was attacked. Oh. His still bleeding wound suggested a very recent attack. Detectives uh, detectives estimated his death to have occurred at approximately 11 a.m. So, oh, I know, right? Like, la la. Um, Lizzie's mm, Lizzie's initial answers to the police, um, the, their questions were at times strange and contradictory. Initially, she had reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call, which it's either a groan, a scraping noise, or a distress call. There are three different things. Yeah. Which is it? <laughs> one of them is, uh, one of them is, and one of them is, ha! Ah! <laughs> three. <laughs> three different fucking things. <sighs> Which did, one was it? <laughs> I know, or did they all happen in that order? <laughs> I mean, I can understand if you hear like, uh, like that's different, but she said it was either one of the three. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, I'm curious. I would love to know what one it was. But then, but then, two hours later, she told police that she didn't hear anything. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, okay. <laughs> she said that she didn't, two hours later, she said she didn't hear anything and then entered the house, not realizing that anything was wrong. So when she asked, when asked where her, uh, stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Uh, it's a trap. Convenient. Why don't you go upstairs? Especially it's a trap. To this room right here with the dead woman on the floor. <laughs> yeah, right there. Just go, just go in there and close the door. Right? Uh, Bridget and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, Leanna. Um, <laughs> I'm like, it took me a minute. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Her last name's Churchill. Aww. Um, so, thing. I'm sorry. They were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said she was too calm and poised, despite Lizzie's attitude and changing alibis. Nobody bothered to check for her blood stains. Nobody, did ch- nobody wanted to check her for blood stains. Like, why would you even... Why? Yeah. Obviously, this was the 1800s, and, like, forensics were not as advanced as they are today. But, like, you're still gonna fucking check for bloodstains. I mean, H.H. Holmes, they, you know, come on. Um, So, police did search her room, but it was merely a uh, cursory inspection. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Lizzie was not feeling well. 
They were, if I could get out of everything by saying, I don't feel well. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't feel well. Um, they, they were subsequently criticized for their lack of diligence. Um, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Fucking yeah, cops. you don't say. So in the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes. <laughs> they must be related to the Ramseys. I don't know. <laughs> you said hatchets and... Hatchets and axes? Hatchets and axes. Hatchets and asses. Why is that hard to fucking say? All I could think of was fucking the great outdoors. <laughs> Lips and assholes. <laughs> oh, you know what? Our dogs are made of. Uh, Lips and assholes. Hatchets uh, and axes. Hatchets and axes. <laughs> we got some axes. We got some axes. <laughs> a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ass and the dust... The ass... <laughs> the ash... Oh, and, like dust, and dust on the head, unlike that on the other bladed tool, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time, John Ramsey. However, <laughs> when you do that, do in a deep voice. When you do, <laughs> Burke. <laughs> Burke. <laughs> However, Burke. none of these uh, tools were removed from the house because why would you remove a possible murder weapon? <sighs> Cops. Cops. What are you gonna do without them? What are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna... <laughs> uh. Oh, we don't So, because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the family before the murders... That's stricken the family! Oh, my! <laughs> the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomachs removed during autopsies... Wait, stomachs? She had stomachs. Andrew and Abby's, honey. Oh, Both okay, of their stomachs. Okay, they okay. didn't have one combined stomach. Oh, this isn't the fucking human I didn't hear the other right. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, oh. So, um, they were removed during oh, autopsies performed in the boarding uh, dining room. The autopsies were removed in the... The autopsies <laughs> were in the family dining room. Oh, nice! Wait, dining room? <laughs> the autopsies were performed in the dining room. <laughs> Why would you do that? I you don't know like they had, they fucking had morgues and shit in the 1800s, didn't mm. they? <laughs> What's for dinner, honey? <laughs> it's like on those shows sometimes they'll show a scene like the mortician and they're eating the fucking. Mm. That don't make you feel a little cannibalish. <laughs> here, let me set oh my, my God, sandwich Jesus here. Christ. On top of this dead corpse as I'm cutting <laughs> into it right next to the... Oh, my God. So, they... <laughs> like I said, their stomachs were, you know, the autopsies were performed in the fucking dining room. <laughs> yeah. And their stomachs were tested for poison, but none was found. So, we can well, rule out I'm poison. glad. I'm glad they don't have to worry about poisoning themselves <laughs> after this after dinner. <laughs> That's nice. I know, right? Oh, mm. Mm. <laughs> so Lizzie and Emma's friend Alice Russell decided to stay with them the night following the murders. I'm sorry. Wait, what? I, okay. What happened? Okay, hang on a second. So <laughs> Lizzie and Emma's friend Alice Russell decided to stay with them the night following the murders. 
I'm sorry. If my friend and her sister or one of the one or both are suspected of murder, I'm not staying with them. No. <laughs> I'm gonna be like, bitch, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. <laughs> <laughs> so I would not sleep. Nope. So their uncle, John, whatever the fuck his name was, Morse. <laughs> Don't spit it out. Um, he spent the night in the attic yeah. guest room. Contrary to later accounts that he slept in the murder site guest room. Mm. Yikes. Um, oh, police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th, during which an officer claimed to have seen Lizzie enter the cellar with Alice. Carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail, like a slop bucket. Um, he stated that he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Lizzie returned alone, though he was unable to see what she was doing. He stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. Woo! What? <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> on off. Whoa! Didn't know. Braided. What's the rate? <laughs> what you looking at there, Popo? So, on August 5th, Morse Morse left the house and was swarmed by hundreds of people. Um, Police had to escort him back to the house. On August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sister's clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. Finally! Like, why wouldn't you do that whenever you first inspected the fucking house, dumbass? You gave him time to clean the fucking murder weapon. Yeah, here, let me just... God, fucking police. Oh, I swear. Okay, so that evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that... <laughs> Excuse you. Sorry. No, whoa, what was that? <laughs> it was an EVP. It was a ghost oh, burping. It's that Friday. So a cop and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie... The well, Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. You don't say. Don't Everyone, say. in case you didn't know, when there's a murder, if 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 you and I lived together, and Pat got murdered, we'd both be suspects. <laughs> yeah, we'd be the first ones that they would fucking look at. Yes. So she was informed that she was a suspect. Uh, so the next morning, Alice entered the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress. <laughs> Lizzie explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. Was that red paint? Yeah, was it red paint? Uh, Was it your period? Um, It was never determined whether or not it was the dress she had uh, been wearing on the day of the murders. So Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing on August 8th. Her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that an inquest might be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves, which could definitely affect her testimony. Mm. Remember that. Mm -hmm. And it is possible that her testimony was affected by this, like I just said. Um, Lizzie's behavior was erratic, and she often refused to answer a question, even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning and question. Sorry, I'm trying to swallow a burp. Such as claiming to have been in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived, which I didn't know they had those in the 1800s, but apparently they did. Um, So then uh, claiming to have been in the dining room doing some ironing, and then claiming to have been coming down the stairs. 
She was all over the place. Jeez. <clears throat> Jazz. She Holy had. God, she's like the mice in Cinderella. <laughs> she had you also claimed <clears throat> to have removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, despite police photographs clearly showing Andrew wearing boots. Hmm. The district attorney was very aggressive and confrontational. Um, on August 11th, Lizzie was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony, the basis for the modern debate regarding her guilt or innocence, was later ruled ad- inadmissible at her trial in June 1893. Contemporaneous newspaper. <laughs> Contemporaneous. That's a $5 word, and I only have three, so. Um, that Anus. word, uh, newspaper articles, noted that Borden possessed Anus. a stolid demeanor and bit her lips, flushed, and bent toward Attorney Adams, like... I bite my lips all the time. Make me a fucking suspect. Wait, wait, what? What? Like, why is she like? Wait, what is that? What that? Wait. <laughs> wait, that gets you out of being a mer. <laughs> members of our Facebook page, you need to join because we're live right now. <laughs> we only have one person watching. Hi, Michelle. Daddy. And, um, ah. it, <laughs> face that Ashley just made. Um, anywho. Excuse me, I have a murder. So. <laughs> so. I'm sorry. So it was also reported it. that yeah. the testimony provided in the inquest had caused a change of opinion among her friends who had been here to for what the fuck? <laughs> here to for scores. <laughs> Seven years ago. Jeez. Um Seven. strongly maintained her innocence. <laughs> Strong strongly maintained. Her innocence. <laughs> yes, thank you. Return. The inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including an extensive three-page write-up in the Boston Globe. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd. Lizzie Borden... Uh, Lizzie Chot... Lizzie <laughs> Trial! Lizzie... <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Lizzie's trial took place in New Bedford starting on June 5th, 1893. Prosecuting attorneys... That doesn't make sense either, but... Prostituting? No. Prosecuting? Oh, you said prosecuting. I'm sorry. Not prostituting. Well, it sounds very close. (laughs) Prosecuting attorneys. They had Say say that real fast. (laughs) Prostituting... Prosecuting attorney. I'll get you out of jail, and I'll give you a good time. <laughs> pro bono, pro boner. <laughs> if you're looking for a new profession, prostitute attorney is that might be right for you. <laughs> This, this, <laughs> okay, sorry. And this, the name, 
the name <laughs> Hosea M. Knowlton <laughs> and future Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody, which we've heard about Moody before. Booty. Oh. <laughs> Not Booty. <laughs> Fucking weirdo. Booty. <laughs> oh, I got booty. Uh, my God. I'm sorry. Defending the defense were Andrew Jennings, Melvin Adams, and former Massachusetts Governor George Robinson. <laughs> Five days before the trial commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time, uh, the victim was Bertha Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> Bertha. Bertha. <clears throat> Anywho, who was found <laughs> hacked to death, noted by jurors. However, Jose Correa de Almeida, a Portuguese Ooh. immigrant, <laughs> look at me getting all fancy and shit. Get the Correa de Almeida. There you go. I can't do it. I tried. Just... A Portuguese immigrant was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894, and was determined to not have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the board murders. If any of this shit is incorrect, you can blame Wikipedia. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Don't blame us. Blame the Wikipedia. Yeah. Don't blame us. Blame yourself for listening to us. Um, <laughs> he was uh, later convicted and was determined to not have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the board murders. A prominent point of discussion in the trial or press coverage of it was the hatchet head found in the basement, Burke, which was not <laughs> convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to have been the burner weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. Um, one officer testified that the hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another contradicted this. Ain't nobody know what the fuck's going on. <clears throat> Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Alice testified that on August 8, 1892, she had witnessed Lizzie burn a dress in the kitchen stove. Hmm... Um, claiming that it had been ruined when she brushed against the wet paint. During, I bet it was red, too. During the course of the trial, defense never attempted to challenge this claim, because why would you? Like, really? Yeah. Really? Like, Lizzie's present at the, presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial, according to testimony. Bridget entered the second floor of the home around 10.58 a.m., and Lizzie and her father downstairs... <clears throat> Um, or, and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people at this time she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly a half hour. If you hear that, there's kids playing outside and it's not an EVP, I swear. It could be, I don't know. Um, so, <sighs> I can't with this name. Wait, no, come on! <laughs> you can't, you can't just like... <sighs> Bring it up and not say anything about it. You ready? Yes, I am. <laughs> Hyman Lebinsky. <laughs> Wait, hi Hyman. Hyman, like, you know, Hyman. <laughs> you broke your Hyman. Your Hyman? Hyman Lebinsky. Testified. Is this where they got their names for, I like, body know, parts as they went along with life? I don't know, maybe. I, I mean, mean, they Achilles, say that everybody's Achilles. Yeah. I know your Achilles attended. That's true. I, I don't think they named um, the Cherry Breaker um, after a guy from the 1800s. I think that's been around for a long time. <laughs> the Cherry Breaker. <laughs> the cherry Breaker. Um, so Hyman Lebinsky <laughs> testified Hyman. 
God, that name. Uh, Testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m. and Charles Gardner confirmed the time at 11.10 a.m. Lizzie called Bridget downstairs and told her Andrew had been murdered and ordered her not to enter the room. Instead, Lizzie sent her to go get a doctor. Both victims' heads had been removed during the autopsy, which was, I'm assuming, on the dining room floor, um, and the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial and presented on June 5th, 1893. Children. Why out there? I don't know, right? <laughs> Upon seeing them in co- the courtroom, Lizzie fainted. She I fainted! Mean, like, I mean, she fainted! <clears throat> she fucking... <laughs> she this fainted. is in America, remember? We <laughs> fainted. Evidence was excluded that Lizzie had sought to purchase prussic, prussic acid uh, purportedly for cleaning a sealskin cloak at, from Pruss- a local Pruss- druggist acid. on the day before the murders. The judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have any connection. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey. <laughs> Dewey. Justin Dewey. Officer Dewey. <laughs> I know! Deputy Dewey. Oh, God. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. Oh, wow. I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. I'm Pinch it off. Yep. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. I shouldn't have all that. The presiding associate justice, uh, Justin Dewey, had... <laughs> who had been appointed by Robinson when he was governor, delivered a lengthy summary that supported the defense at his charge to the jury before it was sent to deliberate on June 20th, 1893. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Lizzie of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters that she was the happiest woman in the world. The trial has been compared to the later trials of Bruno... Bruno Bruno Humptman Humptman We'll just call him Bruno Humptman I don't know Ethel Ethel and Julius Julius Rosenberg and OJ Simpson I can say that one Um, as a landmark and publicly and publicity and public interest in the history of American legal proceedings I can't Go. There we go. Hi, Angela. Um, Although acquitted at trial, Lizzie remains the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's murders. Writer Victoria Lincoln proposed in 1967 that Lizzie may have committed the murders while in a... A fugue? State? I don't know. Another prominent theory suggests that Lizzie was physically and sexually abused by her father, which drove her to commit parasite. There is little, little evidence to support this, but incest is not a topic that would have been discussed at the time, because it was normal and disgusting. And the type of methods for collecting physical evidence would not have been, or would have been, quite different in 1892. This theory was intimidating. This story, this theory was intimated in local papers at the time of the murders and was revisited by scholar Marcia Carlyle in a 1992 essay. <clears throat> Mystery author Ed McBain, in his McBain. 1984 novel Lizzie, McBain, <clears throat> suggests that Lizzie committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian tryst 
with Bridget. Oh, naughty, naughty, naughty. Um, suggest, uh, su- suggested. Where am I at? <coughs> la 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 la. Okay. <coughs> and had reacted with horror and disgust, and that Lizzie had killed Abby with a candlestick. Wait, damn. Yeah. I mean, that's a big ass candlestick. Oh, crap. When Andrew returned, she had confessed to him, but killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. McBain confessed to him, but killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. <clears throat> I just read that. McBain. <laughs> she was just making sure you, you know. <laughs> making heard sure her, you understand. You know. um, huh? Figure what? Uh, oh, thank you. Um, Angela says that uh, fugue state or psychogenic fugue is a dissociative disorder characterized by reversible amnesia. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, where am I at? McBain further speculates that Bridget disposed of the hatchet somewhere afterwards. In her later years, Lizzie further speculates that, I already read that, Lizzie was rumored to be a lesbian, but there was no such speculation about Bridget, who found other employment after the murders and later married a man she met while working as a maid in Butte, Montana. She died in Butte in 1948, where she allegedly had, or gave a deathbed confession to her sister, stating that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. Others noted as potential suspects in the crimes include Bridget, possibly in retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day. The day of the murders was unusually hot, and at the time, she was still recovering from the mystery illness that had struck the household. Um, William Borden, suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son, was noted as a possible suspect by writer Arnold Brown, who surmised in his book, Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter, that William may have tried and failed to extort money from his father. However, author Leonard Rebello did extensive research on the William Borden in Brown's book, and he was able to prove that he was not Andrew Borden's son. <clears throat> Emma had an alibi at Fairhaven, about 15 miles from Fall River. Crime writer Frank Spearing proposed in his 1984 book that Lizzie may have secretly visited the residence to kill her parents before returning to Fairhaven to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. Another prominent suspect is John Morse, Lizzie's maternal uncle, who rarely met the family and after his sister or after his sister died, but had slept in the house the night before the murders. According to law enforcement, Morse had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. He was considered a suspect by police for a period. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large modern house in the Hill neighborhood in the Fall River. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lizbeth A. Borden. At their new house, which Lizbeth dubbed Maplecroft, they had staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew and then his death. at his death passed on to his daughters as part of his estate. A considerable settlement, however, was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Despite the acquittal, Elizabeth was ostracized by Fall River Society. Her name was uh, again brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897 in Providence, Rhode Island. 
1905, shortly after argument over a party that Elizabeth had given for actress Nance O'Neill, Emma moved out of the house and she never saw her sister again. <clears throat> yeah, fucking, fucking crazy. Fucking crazy. So Elizabeth was ill in her last year following the removal of her gallbladder. She died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927 in Fall River. Funeral details were not published and few attended. Nine days later, Emma died from chronic nephritis, yeah, nephritis at the age of 76 in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire. <clears throat> she moved to this location in 1923, both for her health and to avoid renewed publicity following the publication of another book about the murders. The sisters, neither of whom were ever married, um, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Lisbeth was worth over $250,000, which is equivalent to $4.7 million in 2017. <clears throat> she owned a house on the corner of French Street and Belmont Street, several office buildings, shares, and several utilities, two cars, a large amount of jewelry. Lisbeth left 30000 equivalent to 567000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and 509000 in 2017, in trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Her closest friend and a cousin each received 6000 or 113000 today, substantial sums at the time of the estate's distribution in 1927. Blah. Um, numerous friends and family members each received between 1000 or 19,000 and 5,000, 95,000, and which that's a big difference right uh, there. <laughs> yeah, shit. I could think of my in my family who would get the the nine the 19,000 and who would get the 97,000 or 95,000. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I could think of a couple people. So scholar mm. Ann Schofield notes that Borden's story has tended to take one or the other of the two fictional forms. The Tragic Romance and the Feminist Quest. As the story of Lizzie Borden has been created and recreated through rhyme and in fiction, it has taken on the qualities of a popular American myth or legend that effectively links the present to the past. The case was memorialized in a popular skipping ropes rhyme sung to the tune of then popular song Ta Ra Ra Boom Day A. Ta Ra Ra <laughs> Boom Day A. Ta Ra Ra <laughs> So Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her, you know, all that. Actually, the Bordens received wax. 29 wax, not the suggested 81 by the famous Diddy. <laughs> but the popularity of the above poem is a testament to the public's fascination with the 1893 murder trial of Lizzie Borden. The source of, the f uh, of that fascination might lie in the almost unimaginably brutal nature of the crime given the sex, background, and age of the defendant. Or in the jury's acquittal of Lizzie in the face of prosecution, evidence that most historians today find compelling. On a hot August 4th, 1892, I keep wanting to say 19, 1892, I know, 19, holy crap, what? <laughs> uh, maybe that actually happened. At 92 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts, Bridget Sullivan, the maid in the Borden family residence, rested in her bed after having washed the outside windows. She heard the bell at the city hall ring and looked at her clock. It was 11 o'clock. A cry from Lizzie Borden, the younger of the two Borden daughters, broke the silence. Maggie, come down. Come down quick. Father's dead. Under the headline, 
shocking crime, a vulnerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. The Fall River Herald reported that news of the Borden murders. It spread like wildfire, flower, wildfire and hundreds poured into, the, into Second Street, where for years Andrew J. Borden and his wife had lived in happiness. A Herald reporter who visited the crime scene described the face of the dead man as sickening. Which, if you haven't seen the um, crime scene photos and you're not, like, freaked out by that kind of shit, look them up. <clears throat> it's weird. What is it? The crime scene photos of Liz- or Lizzie's dad and stepmom. Mm. It's... Um, over the left temple, a wound six by four inches wide had been made as if it had been pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out and cut extended... The length and the cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked to pieces and the blood had covered the man's shirt. Despite the gore, the room was in order and there were no signs of a scuffle of any kind. Initial speculation as to the identity of the murderer, the Fall River Herald reported, centered on a Portuguese laborer who had visited the Borden home earlier in the morning and asked for the wages due him. Only to be told by Andrew that he had no money and to call later. The story added that medical evidence suggested that Abby Borden was killed by a tall man who struck the woman from behind. Two days after the murder, papers began reporting evidence that 33-year-old Lizzie Borden might have had something to do with her parents' murder. Most significantly, Eli Bent, a clerk at S.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River, told police that Lizzie visited the store the day before the murder and attempted to purchase prusic prusic acid, a a deadly poison. A story in the Boston Daily Globe reported rumors that Lizzie and her stepmother never got along. Um, uh, blah, 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 never got along oh. together peacefully, and that for a considerable time they have not spoken. But also noted that family members insisted relations between the two women were quite normal. The Boston Herald, meanwhile, viewed Lizzie as. Um, viewed Lizzie as above suspicion from the consensus of opinion that it can be said in Lizzie Borden's life there is not one unmaidenly nor single deliberately unkind act because I'm sure she was a pillar of the community because we all know that pillars Uh, are killers uh, mm. Um, police Mm. came to the conclusion that the murders must have been committed by someone within the Borden home but were puzzled by the lack of blood anywhere except on the bodies of the victims and their inability to uncover any obvious murder weapon. Wow. Increasingly, suspicion turned towards Lizzie, since her older sister Emma was out of the home at the time of the murders. Investigators found it odd that Lizzie knew so little about the mother's Mm -hmm. whereabouts after 9 a.m., when, according to Lizzie, she had gone upstairs to put shams on the pillows. They also found unconvincing story, um, unconvincing her story that the um, 15 minutes in which Andrew Borden was murdered in the living room, Lizzie was out in the backyard barn looking for irons, lead sinkers, for an upcoming fishing excursion. Mm. The barn loft where she said that she uh, looked revealed no footprints on the dusty floor, and the stifling heat in the loft seemed likely to discourage anyone from spending more than a few minutes searching for equipment. Theories about a tall male intruder were reconsidered, and one leading physician explained that hacking is almost a positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she is doing. 
On August 9th, an inquest into the Borden murders was held in the courtroom over police headquarters before criminal magistrate Josiah Blaisdell, District Attorney Hosea Knowlton, questioned Lizzie Borden, Bridget Sullivan, household guest John Morris, and others. During her four hours examination, Lizzie gave confused and contradictory answers. So, on August 22nd, Lizzie returned to a Fall River courtroom for her preliminary hearing, at the end of which Judge Josiah Blaisdell pronounced her probably guilty and ordered her to face a grand jury and possible charges for the murder of her parents. In November, the grand jury met. After first refusing to issue an indictment, the jury reconvened and heard new evidence from Alice Russell, a family friend who stayed with the two Borden sisters the days following the murders. Um, And as we learned... About yeah. putting the dress with the paint on it and all that stuff. Um, the co- So, after all that, they still acquitted her. I mean, obviously, they did have lack of evidence. I mean, but still, I don't know. It's just weird. So, um, right? <laughs> the trial of Lizzie Borden opened on June 5th, 1893 in the New Bedford Courthouse before a panel of three judges. A high-powered defense team, including Andrew Jennings, George Robinson, um, and George Robinson, represented the defendant, while District Attorney uh, Knowlton and Thomas Moody argued the case for the prosecution. Before a jury of 12 men, Moody opened the state's case when Moody carelessly threw Lizzie's blue frock on the prosecution table during his speech. It revealed the skulls of Andrew and Abby, as we said. So, the first um, several witnesses for the state testified concerning evidence around the Borden home on the morning of August 4th. Um, We talk about uh, Bridget being um, the only witness, really, testified that Lizzie was the only person that she saw in the home, Um, but could they have been in a relationship? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Back then, they definitely would have been hiding it. That's for damn sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so showing affection out in public. How dare you? Mm-hmm. So... Holding hands. Oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> the next set of witnesses described events um, of the murders. Dr. Seabury Bowen, the Borden family physician summoned to the home by Lizzie in the late morning of August 4th, recounted Lizzie's story about looking for lead sinkers in the barn and her contention that her father's troubles with his tenants probably had something to do with the murders. On cross-examination, Seabury agreed with the defense's suggestion that the morphine he prescribed for Lizzie might account for some of the confused and contradictory testimony. You think? Yeah. Uh, Adelaide Churchill, a Borden neighbor and another important witness, remembered Lizzie wearing a light blue dress with a diamond figure on it, but did not recall seeing any blood spots on it. Hmm. John Fleet, the assistant marshal of Fall River, recalled his interview with Lizzie shortly after the murders. Lizzie corrected him. He testified when he called Abby Borden her mother. She was not my mother. She was my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. The most compelling testimony came again from Alice Russell. She described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders in which she announced that she would soon be going on vacation and that something is hanging over me. I cannot tell what it is. According to Russell, after describing her parents' severe stomach sickness to which she attributed to bad baker's bread, Lizzie revealed, I feel afraid something's going to happen. Explaining her feeling, Lizzie told Russell that she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open, 
half the time for fear somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Jeez. Turning his questioning to Sunday after the murders, uh, District Attorney Moody asked Russell about the dress burning incident. He recounted that when she asked Lizzie what she was doing with the blue dress, she replied, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It's covered with paint, as we said. Mm-hmm. So, a newspaper account of the prosecution case likened it to a pigeon shooting match in which District Attorney Moody kept flinging up the birds and defying his an antagonist to hit them, while the ex-governor, defense attorney Robinson, constantly fired and often, but by no means always wounded or brought them down. Robinson's performance impressed reporters, with one writing that the ex-governor is certainly without uh, equal in New York City as a cross-examiner. The defense made its case using, for the most part, the state's own witnesses. There has never been a trial so full of surprises, wrote one reporter covering the trial. With such marvelous contradictions given by witnesses called for a common purpose, the defense kept hammering at the contradictory testimony of key prosecution witnesses. The defense also explored holes in the prosecution case where the defense asked, is the handle that supposedly broke off the axe head um, that the state also exploited the governor's own timeline? Um, the state had no answer for anything. They had no answer. They they didn't know anything any more than anybody else did, which you're uh, you're supposed to be an investigator. You're supposed yeah. to be a state attorney. You're supposed to be the police, and you're not doing your fucking job. Yeah. The police aren't doing their job. The state attorney isn't doing their job. The state isn't doing their job. Nobody's doing their fucking job. What the hell? They're just giving Lizzie fucking morphine and, and asking her question. Yeah. Um, the, let's see. The decisive moment in the trial might have come when the three-judge panel ruled that Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, full of contradictions and implausible claims, could not be submitted into evidence by the prosecution. The judges concluded that Lizzie at the time of the coroner's inquest was for all practical purposes a prisoner charged with two murders and that her testimony at the inquest made in the absence of her, her attorney was not voluntary. Lizzie should have been warned, the judges said, that she had a right under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution to remain silent. The judges rejected the state's argument that Lizzie was only a suspect, not a prisoner, at the time of the inquest, and that anyway her statement should be admitted because it was in the nature of denial rather than a confession. The prosecution rested its case on June 14th after one final defeat. The state wanted to have druggist Eli Bentz recount for the jury his story of Lizzie Borden's visiting a Fall River drugstore on the day before the murders and asking for 10 cents worth of prusic acid, a poison. Mm. With the jurors excused each leaving, leaving the courtroom with a palm leaf fan and ice water, the state tried to establish through medical experts, druggists, fear, fear, the druggists, druggist, druggist, that's the word, druggist, druggist, not pharmacist, druggist, is druggists. Um, they use all these people. Um, the quality they asked all these people the qualities, properties, and uses of prusic, prusic acid. The judges, after listening to the state's foundational case, concluded that the evidence should be excluded. The defense presented only a handful of witnesses, Charles Gifford and Uriah Kirby, reported seeing a strange man near the Borden house around 11 o'clock the night before the murders. 
Dr. Benjamin Hanfey testified that he saw a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk near 92 2nd Street around 10.30 on August 4th. I don't know if it's a.m. or p.m. It doesn't say. Hmm. I'm assuming a.m. <laughs> Probably. Uh, a plumber and a gas fitter excuse me, testified that in the day or two before the murders, they had been in the Borden's barn loft, casting doubt on a police on police assertions that Lizzie's alibi was suspect because dust in the loft appeared undisturbed. But these, the plumber and the gas fitter testified that they were in the barn. But the police say that there was no footprints. I don't. I'm. It's, it's such a fucking clusterfuck. So, uh, and I don't know. Emma Borden, the older sister of Lizzie, was the defense's. They flew in. That's how they. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Liz. Okay, so Emma Borden, the older sister of Lizzie, was the defense's most anticipated witness. Emma testified that Lizzie and her father enjoyed a good relationship. She told jurors that the gold ring found on the little finger of Andrew Borden's body was given to him 10 or 15 years ago by Lizzie, and he prized it highly. Emma also insisted that relations between Lizzie and her stepmother were cordial, even as she admitted to lingering resentment herself over the transfer by her father of the Fall River home, which Emma called Grandfather's House, to Abby and her sister. The defense had also hoped that Emma might testify that the Bordens had a custom of disposing of remnants and pieces of dresses by burning, but the court ruled the evidence inadmissible. Summoning up for the defense, A.V. Jennings argued that there is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. There is not one spot of blood, there is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. Following Jennings, Governor Robinson, in his closing speech for the defense, insisted that the crime must have been committed by a maniac or a devil, not by someone with the respectable background of his client. He said that the state had failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable, do- reasonable doubt, and that it was physically impossible for Lizzie, without the help of a confederate, weird, to have committed the crime within the timeline suggested by the prosecution. Robinson ridiculed the theory that Lizzie might have avoided getting blood spots on her clothes by killing her parents while stark naked. Whoa! <laughs> wait, did some like somebody wait? These didn't like somebody actually do that? Like, I don't know. Like that's how they like they couldn't find them for like the longest time, and I think it was like a woman. I don't know. Maybe. I don't Maybe it was just a movie I saw. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but they argued that the murders might well have been committed by an intruder who passed out of the house undetected. After Hosiah Knowlton's um, able summoning of the prosecution's evidence, Justice Dewey charged the jury. According to one newspaper report, had the judge been the s- senior counsel for the defense making the closing plea in behalf of the defendant, he could not have been he could not have more absolutely pointed out the folly of depending upon circumstantial evidence alone. It was the newspaper said a remarkable charge, a plea for the innocent. Justice Dewey told jurors that they should take into account Lizzie's exceptional Christian character. <laughs> entitled She's her Christian. to every interference in She's her favor. Christian. Fuck you and your Bible, okay? Um, <laughs> no. mm. I'm gonna get on my broom and fly away. Um, fly away. The jury deliberated an hour and a half before returning with its verdict. 
The clerk asked the foreman of the jury, what is your verdict? Not guilty, the foreman replied simply. Lizzie let out a yell, sank into her chair, rested her hands on a courtroom rail, and put her face in her hands, and then let out a second cry of joy. Soon Emma, her counsel courtroom spectators, were rushing to congratulate Lizzie. She hid her face in her sister's arms and announced, Now take me home. I want to go to the old place and go once tonight. Papers generally praise the jury's verdict. The New York Times, for example, editorialized, It will be a certain relief to every night, every right-minded man or woman who has followed the case to learn that the jury um, in New Bedford has not only acquitted Miss Lizzie Borden of the atrocious crime which she was charged, but has done so with a promptness that was very significant. The Times added that it considered the verdict a condemnation of the police authorities of Fall River who secured an indictment and may have conducted the trial. Not may have. And have conducted the trial. Not stopping there, the Times editorialist blasted the vanity of ignorant and untrained men charged in the detection of crime. In smaller cities, the police in Fall River, the editorial concluded, they are usual, the usual inept and stupid muddle-headed sort that such towns manage to get it for themselves. That is so fucking true. Men. <laughs> it's probably fair to say that however likely it may be that Lizzie did murder her parents, the prosecution failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The, state ca the state's case rested largely on the argument that it was impossible for anyone else to have committed the crime. For the Borden jury, that and a few other suspicious actions on Lizzie's part, such as burning the dress. Uh, it turned out to not be enough for a conviction, however. Had the defendant been a male, some speculate the jury might not have might have been more inclined to convict. One of the defense's great advantage was that the person in 1893 found it hard to believe that a woman of Lizzie's background could have pulled off such brutal killings. Well, yeah, I should have thanked her. <laughs> the fuck was that? <laughs> she was a psycho. <laughs> After the trial. No, she is a... She is a, a Christian woman. How dare... How dare you accuse her? Mm, yeah. So after the trial, Lizzie Borden returned to Fall River, where she and her sister Emma purchased an impressive home on the hill, which they named Maplecroft. Lizzie took an interest in theater, frequently attending plays, and often associating with actors, artists, and bohemian types. Sorry. <laughs> and Emma moved out of Maplecroft in 1905. Lizzie continued to live in Maplecroft until her death at age 67 in 1927. She was buried by the graves of her parents in Fall River's Oak Grove Cemetery. Oh, shit. Um, following her release from jail, she was held during the trial, that she was held in during the trial. Lizzie chose to remain, like I said, in Fall River, um, on the hill. The on Commonwealth the of Massachusetts elected not to cha charge anyone else with the murder of Andrew and Abby Borden. And speculation about the crime still continues to this day, more than 125 years later. She spent the remainder of her life in Fall River before dying of pneumonia, like I said, just days before the death of her sister, Emma. That is the story of Lizzie Borden. Jesus. 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 So, um, thank you, Angela and Michelle and Cameron. Thank you uh, for tuning in. Thank you, 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to be real friends, you could go and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Pod, Pod. You don't even cast. know. I say do shut up. Um, all all kinds up. of platforms you can find us on. Um, follow us on Facebook, like our page, like us on Instagram, we're on TikTok, yeah. we're all over the place. We're on yeah. Twitter now. Oh yeah, apparently Twitter. Yeah, yeah. we're everywhere. Twitter. We're on Twitter. Go on there on Twitter. So, um, if you are on our Facebook page, we are going to try to do these lives, if not every week, every other week, whenever we're at, we're recording at my place. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit easier to do it here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, that was the creep show. That was Lizzie Borden. That's Ashley. I'm Sarah. Stay creepy. Bye. Bye.